Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. It's good to be here with you. It was fun to pull a switcheroo on you and actually be going by, we'll call it 10, even though it was 10.01, but it's close enough. I'm claiming it. So uh, yeah, it's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, We're going to jump right in and read the text for today. We're in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 24 through 32. It says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in them the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind. To do what ought not be done, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but approve of those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. There's no way around it. This is a difficult text right now. Um, Have the elders pray uh, for the preparation of the text and even the hearing of the text all week. And when I say it's a difficult text, what we need to understand is it's not technically difficult. The verbs aren't hard to parse. Uh, it's not difficult to see in the original language what Paul is saying in our modern language. It's, it's difficult because culturally the words inside of here are hated. And we need to wrestle with that appropriately. Not callously, um, but not run from the words in, in them either. Inside our words that could get you uh, in our culture canceled. HR come knocking at your door, fired ostracized or rejected, and yet here we are standing before the word of the God, asking it to do what it always does, to teach us, asking it to show us the heart of the Father, even in hard things, the work of the Son, the need for the Holy Spirit, and really to show us in a clear picture the human condition and how that speaks into the beautiful hope of the gospel. As we move forward in the text, our prayer is simply this together, Psalm 119, 18, a pastor mentor of mine uh, runs to this prayer uh, really before every every sermon open our eyes lord so that we may see wonderful and beautiful things that's the ask Um, don't let us open the word to have our opinions validated to have our egos validated our desires validated but uh, with open ears and clear eyes let us come before your word and see what your word says to us in this moment so the, the text that we're looking at today is directly tied to the text last week. So the reality of the situation that we're in is these sermons, uh, these two texts should have actually been one sermon, but our kids' workers would not have loved me if I did that. Uh, so we're making it two sermons. Last week we covered chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This week we're going to cover chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. If you notice, 24 and 25 are going to be in both. They kind of, uh, it's not meant to be separated from either or. Uh, So I I do understand that we're looking at that again this week, even though we looked at part of that last week. The path that Paul has been walking us down in Romans is this, that he's declaring, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God for salvation, both to the Jew and the Greek. And he's kind of laying out a path. The gospel is the power of God to save anyone and everyone. Even that guy, even that guy, educated, not, from means, not, Jew, Greek, all people can be saved from the word of God. That's why he declares, I'm not ashamed of it. Then he lays out his thesis that he'll beat over and over and over in the book of Romans, which is this, the gospel is the only thing that can fix us, the, the, the world, humanity. In the Paul, the, the text last week, Paul uh, begins to dive into how bad things are. You can't understand the beauty 
of the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation until you understand how much we need to be saved from. So he lays out a case beginning last week to show us how bad the bad news is so we can understand how good the good news is. And he says this is talking about the bad news. Uh, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. That's how bad the bad news begins with. Why? Why is the wrath of God being revealed from heaven? And he says, because of people, all people, you people, me people, all people suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That suppressing of truth leads to the dishonoring of God and and, and thankless hearts towards God. That dishonoring and thanklessness then leads to futile minds, darkened hearts, and claiming to be wise, people become fools, and that leads to the fourth thing, what is called the exchange. The exchange that sin makes when we trade the worship of the creator, Father God, for creation. We trade uh, the worship of the eternal God for temporal created things. This is the path that we walked down last week. This is what humanity does. Again, we need to fully understand this because we're not building a case on a castle against other people. This is not what other people do or what some people do. This is what we do because of sin and we have all sinned. Meaning from Adam and Eve on, this truth of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness has been the sinful rut that each and every one of us have fallen into. We try to uh, really ignore the truth of God's sovereignty over all things, and then instead of of acknowledging his sovereignty, we suppress that, and we try and do what we want, and we try and create our own truth, or live out of our own truth, or execute our own version of, of sovereignty, or godness, or control over the world around us to kind of get what we want, or do what we want. We worship, instead of God the creator, we worship shadows of him, the creation that he has made. This leads us to verse 24. Uh, one of the things that get thrown around a lot that we probably need to wrap our minds around in order for the bad news to make enough sense before we, in chapter 3, hit the glory of the good news, uh, is people throw around the saying quite often that God is infinite in grace and mercy, right? And then they're talking about him, and he, you know, he's just so infinite in grace and mercy, and R.C. Sproul says this, and I agree with it, 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 it It's hard to hear that because it makes me cringe a little bit. Why? Because God is infinite in his being, and God does show mercy towards his creation, but his mercy is not infinite. It says it all over the Bible. There are limits to his mercy. He will not uh, show mercy forever to unrepentant people. There is a limit. This is... Something that's really said all over the Bible. This this shouldn't be a a surprise. There is a time, the Old Testament reports it over and over, especially in Jeremiah, that God stops being gracious to people who are sinning and he gives them over to the sin that they have been chasing. Where God stops restraining people, he stops holding back their evil, and, and he says, okay, go for it, you can have it. This New Testament scripture in Romans is talking about that Old Testament concept all over the Bible. At a certain point, God will give people over to what they want and say, fine, you can have it. He abandons them to their sinful impulses and he removes restraint, saying in essence, if you want to sin, I'm not going to stop you anymore. Now, Biblically, to understand a better picture of the entire Bible, what we need to understand is the grounding that the Father God in the Old Testament is the same Father God in the New Testament. Right? We, we have this idea that he's really angry in the old and, and, a, and a little bit kinder and, and more chill in the new. He's been doing the same thing all along. There's a certain point where he will not show mercy to people who run in sin and do not ever repent. There's an example. Examples help me sometimes to visualize things. This is incomplete, maybe a little bit uh, crude and doesn't fully work, but, but it at least helps me. If you've ever seen an extender dog leash, right? You have the little thing, the button, and there's a certain amount of, of length, and then the dog can go way further out of a distance. And they think because they have some space away from the owner, they, they believe to a certain degree that they have control, right? They run around, I'm in control, look how far I can go, look, look at the area that I can operate in, I can do what I want. 
And they don't realize, like, they go too far, and you, like, hit that button, and they're, they're, they're done. They're stopped. They can't go any further. Or when they hit the end of the extension of their, their leash, they can't go any further from the extension that is given to them. The Bible talks a little bit about God's mercy in that realm. There's only so far that he will let you go. And they don't kind of hit the button or he'll stop or he'll restrain you from running as far into your sin as you could if he let you go. But there's a certain point where he'll stop that. You'll run and run and run after your sin. And there's a certain point that he'll say, okay, fine. He will take it off. He'll take the restraint off and say, hey, you can run after what you want to run after. At this point, when the restraint is moved, it feels like freedom to us. Okay, there's no rules. I can do what I want. There's, there's no restraint. I can have whatever I want now because there are no boundaries. Everything is, is free for me, but it's actually what Paul calls the wrath of God. When the restraint is removed, though you feel like it's freedom, it's actually wrath. God's wrath in this case is not lightning bolts from the sky. It's not plagues, it's not boils, it's not foreign armies coming in, invading and killing or stealing. The wrath of God is... You can worship what you want to worship now. I won't stop you anymore. You can have what you want. Paul says in this, when he does that, God gave them up. This is the, I will not restrain you anymore. I will let you go. I will let you run. I will not slow you down anymore. Again, what we need to understand culturally is the world calls this freedom, happiness. Listen to the words that you hear right now. This is honoring your true self. There's no rules. If it feels good, have it. Honor yourself. Paul says it's a devastating tragedy. Why is that? Why is it so terrible to get what you want? We begin to dig into this last week. We were created to find our meaning, joy, happiness, sustaining, uh, sustaining peace in God. Our wiring is such that our satisfaction comes from connection with the eternal Father. This is how we are created. We'll always be dissatisfied, searching, and discontent without him. If God gives us to chase other things and says, I will not even slow you down anymore, you can worship them fully, then we are destined to strive over and over and over to fail the rest of our lives to to find what our heart really wants. Our hearts will be restless forever. And here's the problem with that. The rabbit hole will get deeper and deeper and the sins that we commit and the things that we do and the things that we chase will get worse and worse and worse and they'll never give us what we want. We lose our humanity in this spot. Truly, and I don't say those words flippantly, we become less human. When we, do not create with the crea- when we do not connect with the creator and we chase other things in order to make us whole. And here's the thing that we kind of run into in verse 28 and 32. We absolutely destroy the fabric of society and community when we do this too. It's not a beautiful place. It's a destructive and horrific place when we do this. When you look at the general layout of the verses today, 24 through 32, we have a slide of this. You're not meant to be able to read all the words, but hopefully it'll kind of show you the breakdown. Verse 24 and 25, what you need to do is when you look at them visually, this this kind of helps me. Verse 24 and 25 show a general giving over. It's, It's general. A general giving over to the lusts of our heart. It's a general way of showing it. Verse 26 and 27, then they move from general to, okay, now I'm going to give you a specific way of being given over to what your heart wants. This is homosexuality. Verse 28 and 32 are going to show the result of being given over, not just the result of the specific. In general, this is what it will lead to when you're given over and you follow your heart and your lusts and your wants. No matter what the sin is, when you run after it long enough, this is where you will get. Often people read this text and they can never get past verse 26 and 27 and they think that verse 28 through 32 is about homosexuality. It's not, it's about sin. We need to understand that or we will go off the the rails. The entire point of this isn't verse 26 and 27. Though verse 26 and 27 is a, a point in this, right? We, we have to balance that or else we'll get real weird real quick. Starting with the general giving over, verses 24 and 25, when Paul says God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, the, the, the NIV version of the Bible says that he gave them up to their sinful desires. The original language here 
uh, I think is much more helpful. The original word is apethumia, which means over-desire. God gave them up to their over-desire. Not really their lust or just their sinful desires, because when we hear sinful desires, it's God gave them up to the bad stuff. No, God gives you the over to the stuff that you want too much. This is really, really important here. It's revealing because the main problem of our heart isn't always that we want bad things. It's that we want good things too much. This is what happens, and we turn good things into God things, and then we go sideways. Again, the worst thing that can happen for us in context of God's wrath is to get as much of the good things as we want in life. That's actually bad news for us. If we get fully what our heart over-desires, it's a painful path, a path of futility and destruction. Why? Why is that? Okay, well, let's, let's run this down the gauntlet of an example. What about the classic man who overvalues his career and worships his career? Right? A career is a good thing. We need to work. We need to put money uh, in the bank. We need to, to feed our families. We, we, we need to be able to, to have a, a job. Okay, So uh, it's a good thing to have a job. We need one. A man who uses a job not just to procure wealth, but his job is what makes him a somebody. It's what gives him value. It's what gives him perceived worth and, and dignity and meaning in the world. This type of man, which many, many, many men are, I would say and women too, I'm just saying man, for example, The career dominates this type of person's life. The career is at the center because that is what's worshipped. Everything else fits around the center. The worst thing that can happen to this man then is a promotion. The man feels like the worst thing that could happen is to get fired. No, the worst thing that could happen is for him to get validated and get a promotion. Why? Because it continues to feed his over-desire. His, his over-worship of a God-given thing, it overfeeds it. And what does it do? It convinces him, if he worships his job and he gets a promotion, what does it do? It validates the path that he's been going on. It convinces him that I've been crushing life. All of these sacrifices and the things and ignoring my kids and all that stuff, it's worth it because I got the promotion. While ignoring the fact that he's destroying his marriage. Completely neglecting his children. Dismantling his relationships all to serve an over desire, the false god of his worship. This feedback loop makes it horrible because he thinks he's doing good, but he's actually destroying things. Does this make sense? Your over-desire, getting what you want is often the worst thing in the world for you. Me too. Oscar Wilde, a poet and author, says, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. He's not a Christian man. The perspective of this quote is not a Christian perspective, but he's acknowledging the fact that our over-desires sabotage us. They literally destroy us. We think that our desires are the answer to our problem. If I win the lottery, if I get the house, if I get married, if I have a kid, whatever it is, if I get that thing, it's just going to fix all things. But when we do that, we don't understand that many times when we get that thing, It's actually a bigger problem. Why? Because we're worshiping it and we don't get what we wanted out of it and then it starts a cycle all over again. As the theologian storyteller G. Brooks says on the opposite side, sometimes God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Yeah, theologian. I want to pick up on a literary technique that Paul is using here in the text. There's a fancy name for it, but we're just going to call it tit for tat even reaction. In verse 21, God says, because they dishonored God, verse 24 says, God let them dishonor their bodies. Do you understand that? They dishonored God. You like dishonor? Well, you can dishonor your body. Showing that our over-desires, though culture say they build us up, Paul says they actually tear us down. They dishonor us. They destroy us. We'll chase our over-desire to a disgraceful and shameful length, is what he's saying. You will dishonor yourself to get what you worship. And part of God's wrath is he'll let you do it. He'll give you up in that way. Again, that was the general sense of being given over to sin. General. It's an umbrella category. Many things fall underneath of it. Verse 26 and 27, he gives 
a specific version. A specific version of being given over to our over-desires, not the only, not the worst, just a specific, is homosexuality, he says. I want to out of the gate be really clear, right? He's not putting a hierarchy in place. He isn't saying that this sin is on a different playing field or a different plane or uh, there's a a worse problem with this than other. He's going and doing what Paul often does. If you read Paul's writing, he does this all the time. He'll give an idea, give a general example, and then he'll move from general to specific. This is what Paul does, giving one example of this while there are many available to us. We're not going to run from this, but we also don't want to over-elevate it. He goes on to speak of women who exchange natural relations for those contrary to nature and men who do the same thing. Paul has already said in the text that we covered last week, hopefully you listen to that, because this only kind of makes sense in light of that. He's already said that God has revealed himself to us through creation. God created all things, and he shows himself and what is true in many different things and how he is created. When he says that women and men have gave themselves over to, to relations that are contrary to nature, in the original language, it's parafusin, which literally means just against nature, against the natural order in which God created humanity to exist in. What is he saying? Because a lot of times when you hear like against nature or, or unnatural, people are like, oh, that's so hateful. No, He's literally connecting to what he said before. You still may not like it, but he's connecting to what he said before. Paul is saying that homosexuality is contrary to God's divine design. To go against nature is therefore to go against God and God's good design. What we need to understand is this this matter isn't fluid. This is what our world has taught us. No, 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 you don't understand. It's a fluid matter, and we've come to a spot that that maybe before, yeah, but now since we're fluid and we've changed, the, the, the answer changes. No, it's an unchanging creation matter. Many hear this, and they get offended, and they get angry, and they, and they hate it, but at the core, all sin is, does God have the right to tell you no? We have, we feel that, but whether it's your envy or this sin, does God have the right to say, no, you can't do that? God's designed in a certain way. To go against his design is a suppression of truth, as we talked about before. But we need to see the line that Paul is weaving. Our key sin that has induced the wrath of God, we saw it last week, is suppressing the truth. The, the point of this text, the key sin that induces the wrath of God is not homosexuality. It's suppressing the truth. God created humanity to be men and women. Again, that is an idea that's not popular right now. It's in Genesis. He created them male and female. He did this. He created this. It is his design that did this. And he designed things in a way where the two genders complement each other in a beautiful way. There's a compliment that happens emotionally, but a big side is the way that they complement each other physically. The physical way that men and women complement each other, fit together, gives us the gift of sex, which God created and said, I've given this to you. That is a good gift, which then leads us to produce offspring, a family line, and children. Remember, in the Bible, God says, be fruitful and multiply. Even being able to do this, the the complementary nature of the two genders lets us fulfill the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. We're created in such a way that this is true. This is just what Paul calls natural law. A man and a woman can have the gift of sex, and the gift of sex can lead to children, and this can cause fruitful and multiplication. This is what is true natural, he's saying. It's just the natural law of the way that God created. To go towards sex or passion outside of natural law in homosexuality is to suppress the truth of how God made things. This is what Paul is saying. It's to say, I don't care about what he made. I suppress the truth about what he made. I'm going to do this or give myself to this or chase this because I want to or or any of the other words. It doesn't matter why. It's just I 
I'm not going to acknowledge that you created that way. I'm going to do this because it's what I want or what I say is right. We need to be to, to like halftime caveats. We cannot fully tackle this issue in the amount of time today. I'm not claiming to. And that, that was part of the tension in here is to deal with such a big and painful issue and not be flippant. I'm just trying to deal with what, what Paul says here. If you have other questions about this topic, me and the elders would be happy to talk to you. But, but we're, we're not going to be able to, to cover the full gamut. I would say this, that we do need to understand. Same-sex attraction is not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about someone not being attracted to the opposite sex either. Paul is talking about when you give yourself to someone of the same sex and you let yourself burn with passion for them and move towards that and say, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. That's the sin he's talked, that he's talking about. I've walked with more than one person who has fought with same-sex desire. Some of them praying and lamenting, God, will you take this away from me? I don't want this. Will you take this away from me? For years and years and years and sit and cried and talked and cared for them. It's painful. It is not a sin to have that desire. It's not. And the church needs to know that. We need to do a better job in saying that. It's a sin to yield to that desire. Those are very, very different. We have not done a very good job of clarifying that. We need to acknowledge clearly those around us who are struggling with same-sex attraction. All of us have a propensity to sin. You do and I do. We have a certain way that we try and suppress the truth and things that tempt us and struggle with. Here's the hard thing to acknowledge. You don't get to decide what your temptation is, and neither do I. Right? Everybody be like, well, I just, if I get to choose, I'll just take boasting. That's not as bad. You don't, you don't get to do that. So what we need to understand is the person who struggles with same-sex desire, they didn't go like, I want that one. They didn't choose it and yet it's there. That means that the church needs to do a better job in loving and caring and treating it as such. Caring for, understanding that there's pain and there's hurt and there's trauma behind a lot of those voices. We've got to do better. Now, very loud voices. Some people mean well and they don't know. Very loud voices are just lying. Best way I can say, they're lying. And they're saying this text doesn't mean what, it, what we say it means. There's two main ways that they say that. And, and it, we don't want to turn this into apologetics, but it has to be at least dealt with a little bit. One of the ways when they say that this text doesn't mean what it says it means is that they, they say, well, Paul's actually talking about pedophilia here. Uh, that he's not talking about consensual sexual encounters. He's referring to the practice of an older man raping a young boy. Uh, there was a form of exploitation in Roman culture. Sometimes that would happen. Sometimes it even happened in idol worship. It's a horrific thing. Uh, and what they'll, they'll do is they'll say, well, Paul was actually talking about this. And what, what we're really against here is the practice of exploitation or rape. We all agree that exploitation and rape is wrong. Paul was talking about that, but not this. The problem with that theory is it literally doesn't say that anywhere. And people will tell you, well, the original language and the verb, and it said, no, it doesn't. There's a word for rape. Paul's a smart man. He did not use that. I'm not trying to be callous, but there are a lot of brothers and sisters who I've had talks with, and they're like, well, I've heard. You're like, that's a lie. That's not actually true. That's not what it says. The other main way that people are arguing right now, the more popular one is this. And what they will say is that Paul did not have a context for monogamous homosexual relationships back then. Meaning he didn't have an example of a devoted relationship that was not heterosexual. And because he didn't have a, a, an example of it to see and know that, 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 that he, he couldn't have known what it was like. So what they would say is that, well, Paul's essentially just talking about hookup culture here. And he's against hookup culture because we don't, we, don't, we don't do that. If he would have known about consensual heterosexual uh, relationships, he would have had no issue with it. And because there was no, no, no context for a committed relationship of a man and a man or a woman and a woman, he couldn't, he couldn't have known 
what, what, what we have now. Does that, does that make sense? He, he didn't understand what it was like, and so he's not actually talking about a committed relationship. He's just talking about people who hook up. But the problem with that is twofold. One, again, like the other, it literally doesn't say that. But here's the other part. He had a really clear context for that. Pluto, for 300 years prior, extensively wrote about devoted homosexual men. Clearly wrote about it. His writing, especially in the circles that Paul would have been going into Rome, it was very clear. It was written about a lot. He even had a close group of friends that he talked about often in his writing that were married for 10 years in a committed relationship. There was a context for it. Here's the bigger one. Nero, who ruled Rome at the time when Paul was writing this letter, was married to a man in devoted same-sex relationship. What does that mean? Paul's literally writing into the context where that's happening right now, where the leader of the area is doing this. There's a very clear context for it. I would say that's actually probably the exact reason that Paul puts this example in 26 and 27 because the shadow of that is upon all people at that point. Here's the thing. It's chronological snobbery at best and a straight-up lie at worst to say they didn't have a context for it. You understand that? Like we can begin to think, well, now in our enlightened picture, if, if they knew what we knew now, then they'd be okay. That's the highest form of hubris and pride you can imagine. You're making a case that Paul was a moron. They had a clear context for it. He just still says God says no to it. The other side, the worst side, is it's a blatant lie. There are many people blatantly lying, saying that words in the text say things that they don't, trying to make, uh, make cloudy or make fuzzy things that are not. And again, I don't want to be callous, but like as brothers and sisters, it, it is causing wars inside the church because people are literally lying about what the Bible says. Is it hard? Yes. Is it painful? Yes. Does it cause trauma? Yes. Is it unclear? No. We have to understand that. There are a couple major errors the church makes about homosexuality. Two big ones, we could go further. The first that's gained a lot of popularity right now is affirmation. Before, I'd say maybe 20 years ago, what the church did is this, and this is why we have to be honest, we did not do a good job. The church hid behind the government for years in the US. Well, it's illegal. Can't do it. And, and they hid behind this for a really long time. Well, then what does the government do? They go, it's legal. And they're like, oh, we don't know what to do. Like, that's what happened to the church. So now many are in complete affirmation, joining the chorus of culture that says God is fine with it. But we have to understand, to affirm in our modern culture is to champion and cheer on. That is, if you do that. We're not asking you to pick it. To affirm in that way is a suppression of truth. It is a denial of how God has created and what he has said. It's a clear refusal to submit to what God has told us. What we must see, though, is affirmation has consequences to real people around us. Paul mentions this, that those who give themselves to unnatural relations will receive the due penalty, which is really heavy stuff. The Bible is clear. Those who give themselves to sexual sin, heterosexual or homosexual. So we need to be really clear. The, the couple that is totally fine with engaging in sex before they're married, married, same as the homosexual, anyone who gives themselves to these sexual relationships outside of the bounds of marriage is in the exact same camp. Doesn't matter which. They have rejected the lordship of Jesus and they're outside of the kingdom of God, Paul says. It really doesn't matter which way? If you go into sexual sin and say, this is what I'm going to do, I don't care what you say, God, it's a refusal to submit to Jesus. What does that mean? Whether it's affirming homosexuality or turning a blind eye to a couple that we know that's having sex outside of marriage, it's a joining in to say, I'm fine with giving you over to your sin too. If God does it, I'll do it too. It's to not lovingly call them to repent so that they may be saved or submit to the king. See, our culture demands affirmation because they say that's the only way to love someone. Is it loving 
to affirm someone knowing that they're not under the lordship of Jesus? Is that the actual, I, 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 that's hard for me to even say. Is it loving to let someone run even further towards the wrath of God and never say anything? I would say no. Again, the call is the same to heterosexual and homosexual sin. We have done, and I mean we as, a, as big C church, we've not, no, we've not done a good job of this one. We've hid from it, we've run from it, we have not dealt with it well. To love someone, again, this is the context, not of the world. It's not saying uh, go out and, and pick it and yell and, and go make a Facebook post. It's talking about us, the church. When someone here in the family, in your MC, in your church is doing this, do not turn a blind eye to them because they're not under submission to Jesus and they're outside of the kingdom of God. The most loving thing to do is say, I love you, repent. He's not telling you to go yell at everyone in the world. Those are very different. The church has also done a really poor job in that. This leads to the second mistake. Can you breathe yet? Are we okay? When churches demonize homosexuality, acting like it's worse. Like it's somehow the untouchable, unpardonable sin. Worse than pornography, greed, worse than envy, worse worse than a gossiping mouth. Because it is not. If we run away from anything today, this is the hope. All unrepentant sin is unrepentant sin. All. Mine, yours. Straight, not. All is unrepentant. That's what Paul's trying to warn us about. I know in our culture war, it seems like something else. This is what Paul cares about. It doesn't matter what form it comes in or what fashion it comes in or how socially acceptable it is in the moment. Right now, to boast and to go get yours and, and to be powerful in our culture is looked at as, get them. It doesn't matter how socially acceptable the sin of, of boasting is or any other sin. We don't accept it. All of that is a suppression of the truth and false worship. We need to level the playing field, so to speak, when it comes to sin. This means really hard things. We have to learn to treat pride and homosexuality the same. Yes, the really hard part of that is like one's more quantifiable to the other. Like We have to be honest about that. But the effects of unrepentant sin are all the same. What does it look like to level the playing field a little bit? to try and welcome those struggling with homosexuality or same-sex desires in a much better way. Welcoming them into the church to hear the gospel. Welcoming into our homes, to our tables, to our lives. If you want to hear a, a big one, welcoming them into our prayers. Instead of treating them like they're something other. We either believe this stuff or we don't. Every man, woman, and child is made in the Imago Dei. Someone struggling with same-sex desires is made in the Imago Dei and worthy of dignity and love. We need to treat them with love, welcome them in, while balancing the really hard act of not validating their desire as good or affirming it. We've got to grow in this, the entire church, how we treat each other. I don't know that we've done this well. And here, here's the hard part, because the culture says you can't do these things. Balance love with not affirming. Culture says the only way to love is, an affirm, is to affirm. As believers, we have to go, that's not true. That's not true. I can love you. I can welcome you in. I can spend time with you. I can care for you. I can pray with you. I can cry with you. And still say, please repent. Again, this goes for every sin, not just the specific example he gives. This text is not meant to only be about one thing. It's not, it's not meant to be radical that we have a culture that calls people out of sin, that the family, we, we say, hey, don't do that, run from that, repent from that. It's not meant to be revolutionary. It, it's meant to be fairly normative. 
Now, we move through the general to the specific, then to the result again. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what they ought not be, or what ought not be done. Again, this is no longer talking about the concept of 26 and 27. This is all people who are given over. 29, they were filled. And the interesting part about the they, Paul will tell us later that they is, it's we, it's me, it's us. It's not another camp. It's all who have sinned. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, full of envy, uh, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, investors uh, or inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. I'm talking about a conscience. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Again, we need to understand what's happening here. He switches angles. He is no longer talking about homosexuality. Now Paul gives the universal picture of what happens to humanity. What is the result? Uh, uh, where does it lead to when God gives them up? Like, If you walk that path down a year, where does it go? The rendering of the Greek to English, again, in, in English doesn't go very well. It's another tit for tat. Because they did not see fit to acknowledge God, the see fit, God saw fit to give them an unfit mind. That, that's the original language. Not only does the our worship get broken when we make the exchange, but our minds go past futile to a, a territory of being debased. What's he saying here? Paul's saying, okay, you gotta do some weird stuff to suppress the truth, right? There's some, there's some kind of moves you need to kind of make to like not see, and when you end up suppressing enough things, some things in the mind just begin to break, is what he's saying. But here's the thing that we need to understand. What you think in your head, because why, why is debased mind a big deal? What you think in your head gets into your heart, and what is in your heart flows into your actions in your life and what you do. So the pre- suppression of truth at the beginning that starts in the mind has a horrific end because then that walks out into your life. Thoughts have consequences. Why? Because thoughts leads to actions. This leads to what he says, evil, coveting, malice, murder, Strife, deceit, maliciousness, inventor of evil, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This list isn't meant to be exhaustive. It's not all the things that can happen. It's a window into some of the things that can happen. How do you feel when you look at that list, though? Because the honest heart looks at it and he goes, I, uh, I have most of those on my resume. We've boasted. We've all deceived people. We've gossiped. Well, maybe you say, well, I didn't do the murder one. Well, Jesus says if you've ever hated someone in the heart, you've committed the sin of murder in your heart. Guilty all the same. What's the point? We're not meant to look at this list and go, he's done more than me. He's the bad guy. Bad guy. We're, meant to, we're meant to look at this list in context of our own mind and our own heart and go, I need rescue. I've done so much of that. So much of that is where I would have naturally gone. Remember, the whole point of this text is to show that the gospel is the only thing that can fix humanity. To re, be reborn through Christ is the only way out of the destructive place that we're at. We don't need a little bit more religion. We don't need a little bit more freedom. We don't need a little bit more learning or a little bit more patience or our political side in. We need new hearts. 
We need to be made righteous by another, the one who actually is righteous, because we know that we are not. We need the radical grace of God to come down and make us brand new. This is the offer of the gospel. Come and take the righteousness of one that does not belong to you, but will be, will, will be given to you if you put your faith in him. Come and believe in what he has done for you. Find redemption in him. Find satisfaction, the satisfaction that you've been looking for in all of that sin in him. Come, taste, and see that he, Jesus, is good, and he is the only thing that will stop that endless cycle of suppression of truth and sinful desire. Paul wants you to know and me to know the gospel is the only thing that will give you a way out of that awful exchange. The exchange of creation over creator, the gospel is the only thing that will flip that back the right way. We can't avoid the words that Paul closes this text with. Those who practice these things, who are fully enveloped in sin and give themselves over to their desires, they will not sing the kingdom of God. And then he mentions a stark warning to us all. It's not just if we do these things. It's also when we give approval to others for doing them. Again, this is not just about 26 and 27. What's the habit of the human heart? It's to not only chase our sins, but to give approval and cheer on other people when they do theirs. Hey, you chase yours, you ch- I'll chase mine, we'll do our thing, and then we'll, then we'll go worship and pray together afterwards, and we'll be fine. The gospel calls us out of this pattern of darkness personally. We are called out of sin And then he calls us out of approving, again, not the world, but calls us out of approving of the family sinning as well. I can't say it clearly enough. Paul's not telling you to go pick at everyone. I I do not want a Facebook post from you after this. That's that's about me or the, the topic. This is family business. This is how we treat each other. This is what you do with the people that you're walking with the people that you have a relationship with. Paul warns us about approving of things that God says are sin. We need new hearts to stop sinning. And we need new hearts to have the courage to tell each other when you need to stop sinning too. Why? Here's the big one. We have to step back because this is what an over-individualization of your faith does. Jesus did not die just to save you. He died to save and create a holy people. Remember 16 and 17? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It creates faith. And then it leads to faith. Because the people of God will righteously live out in faith. You're not called to make it into heaven by the skin of your teeth. You're not meant to beg at the door. I know I did all those things. Will you please please let me in anyway? Are we going to be perfect? No, but we can be better. He's died to create a holy people, light of the world, salt of the world. The people that, that, that when the world looks at us, they actually see something that doesn't look just like them. They see Jesus. This is what we are called to. I want to... I've heard over and over people just say, well, love like Jesus. And what they mean by that is, like, be nice. And in the, in the context, especially with each other and, and maybe calling a brother or sister to repent or something like that, they're like, well, Jesus would just love them and patient. Like, Jesus also would have dinner with someone and then say, go and repent and sin no more. We have to balance the two. Jesus will love and be across the table with someone, but also saying, you can't do that anymore. It is a fallacy to say that Jesus doesn't call people to repent. Go and sin no more are his words that we should be used to giving to each other. We're not crushing each other, but it should not be weird to call each other to stop sinning. As we land the plane today, my hope is this, that we see the text rightly together. This text is not just about homosexuality. The flip of that, but it is about homosexuality in part. This text mostly, though, is about a radical mission of God to save lost people. And that radical offer to save us from our sin is available to us now. 
It's about the full darkness of people that fully have adopted their sin and the beauty of God pulling them out of that. When we look around the world and how broken things are, this text shows us that we're not meant to stand back like Pharisees and look at them and say, oh, look at those terrible people. Thank God that I'm not like them. As we see this text with heavy hearts, we're we're meant to generate worship and go, oh God, that you would save me. I've been them. I am them. I did all of that. You're not meant to look at someone else through this text. You're meant to look at your own heart and your own life and say, thank you. Thank you, oh God, that you would save me when I suppress the truth. Guys, it's a problem if you hear this text and all you're thinking of other people. Oh God, that you would make me new when I was futile in my mind. Oh, that you would, you, you would save me when I was doing all of those things in verse 28 through 32. Thank you, God, that you reached down and made me new. I could have never done that. Amazing grace, how could it be that you would die for me even when I was doing all of that? As we worship and take communion, the hope is that thankfulness would come. Not a spirit of haughtiness or a feeling of superiority, but just broken and humble gratitude. You're kind. Thank God that you're not like me. You're kind and you're loving and you've rescued me. And you guys can come back up. And Here's the call too. If you've never confessed Jesus as Lord, Maybe today is the day that you do that. Here's the reality. You can be in church forever and not know Jesus. It's the proclamation we want to continually give. God sent Jesus not just for us. He sent him for for everyone who has sin, which includes you. If you call upon him, Father, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I need the work of Jesus. He will be faithful and he will be kind to save you. And I just encourage you, we are praying that people will be saved, which means that maybe we're praying for you. Don't walk out over and over and over assuming you're saved, knowing that you never actually called and asked God to save you. You don't have to jump through a million hoops, but for us who are already saved, the the thing is to to, to thankfully come and say thank you. And if you have not been, and you know that God's pulling at your heart, man, I would just say I'd love to pray with you after. Why walk away when you know the beauty of what God has done for you and what he invites you into? We're going to take communion today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And, we, uh, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we take today, here's the beauty. You're proclaiming the beauty of the rescue mission for your soul. You're remembering that there was a real sacrifice and real blood spilt for you. I pray that you would take and that your heart would be encouraged. In that. There's a faithful God who's done much for you. And maybe you've walked a little bit too flippantly around sin. Here's the other side that I hope that you would see. God's calling you to a righteous life and he'll also empower you. I pray that we would be a people who run from unrepentant sin, run towards the cross and see the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. Let's stand and pray.